Welcome back to Sensible Medicine. The day is March 5th, 2023. I'm joined by Drs. Adam Sifu and Professor Marty McCary. Professors, it's good to see you. Great to see you, Benai. So here we are, here we are, back at last. We are having the rotating lineup. We're going to be going through people in the next few weeks. I missed last week. Uh, I ate some bad... We uh, struggled without you last week. <laughs> I heard the little the nod in the beginning. Yeah, I appreciated that. I appreciated that. <laughs> Today, we've got a big lineup for the listeners. The first thing we're going to talk about is extra fellowships. You know me, I love a few more years of training for low pay. The next, we're going to talk about expertise and what expertise really means, especially when there's no data. So we're going to talk about that. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some COVID-19 policy if, if there's time. I know that's the last thing on anyone's mind these days. So let me kick it off with this, with this introduction and then I'll throw it to you, Adam. Um, so, you know, this is an issue that uh, you'd be surprised. It doesn't earn me too many friends. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised people don't like this position, but to be a hemonc doctor currently, you have to do three years of internal medicine. You gotta do three years of hemonc. And that's so much, that's how much we've got so far. Four years of medical school, six years of graduate medical education, 10 years of training. There's a push among many, many programs to add extra years. We've got one-year fellowships in multiple myeloma, one-year fellowships in bone marrow transplant, one-year fellowships in lymphoma, one-year fellowships in breast oncology, one-year fellowships in phase one. These are not ACGME accredited fellowships. And historically, as of like two years ago, they've not been necessary because you could easily finish the 10 years of training and go on to do any one of those things if you so choose. Of course, these are optional. Nobody has to do them. Um, but one of the arguments I make is that like everything optional, the more people do it, the less optional it becomes. And radiology, maybe 15, 20 years ago, was the end of it. You did radiology, you could read images. Now you've got to do MSK or, or chest or body and often two fellowships before you can really even get a job. And so I think we have fellowship bloat. And it's related to, I think, the issue of just how many years we take to train people and how many of those years are useful and how many are useless. And the final piece of the puzzle is I would have no problem with this extra year if they paid them what they pay an assistant professor. But of course, that's why they call it a fellowship. They really call it a fellowship because they're paying you maybe 100K less than what you'd make otherwise. All right. So obviously, I'm a critic. I think we should boycott or abolish these things. Um, but I'm curious what you all think. Okay, and I'm curious what a surgeon thinks because he's got to actually use his hands. So let's start it off with you, Adam. What are your thoughts on, on medical training? Can we shorten the years this extra year? Right, so I, I think the, the clear default argument that people use to uh, promote this is that you know there's an, you know, unbelievable advances, right, in medical knowledge. There's more and more to know. Much of medicine has gotten more and more specialized. There are fewer generalists out there. Um, and so maybe it makes sense to have this extra time. Um, I think I'm in your camp on this. I don't think it's necessary. I think we waste a lot of time in medical education, both in you know UME, undergraduate medical education, medical school, and in GME, um, because there's always this tension between you know, what you do as a low paid worker bee and what you do as a student or trainee who's being educated. I always think we haven't done a good enough job with, with moving people along in their training saying, listen, you've managed 
you know, 15 cases of heart failure as an internal medicine resident, you're done with that. You don't have to do it anymore. You know, you're good enough at that and you can move on. And I, I think that's the same thing in, in hematology oncology fellowships. You've, and okay, I'll come back to you. Marty, your thoughts? I agree with you. Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize there's a crisis we have with physicians burning out or being disillusioned. And if you're in total denial of that crisis, sure, put them in residency and fellowship for 50 years and then have them practice <laughs> one year of excellent, high quality medicine. Um, but the reality is, I don't know if you saw this stat that came out, um, but something like 30 some percent of women leave medicine seven years out from residency. I mean, how can you not address that, right? And the problem is not that they're not getting Mm -hmm. enough uh, classes on equity, right? The problem is that they feel disillusioned with the entire field. And if you think about the entire process, starting with college, a lot of it is a bit of a scam, right? I don't believe in education. I believe in learning, but this idea that you, you know, have to go to, you know, study geology and learn all the different names of the rocks as you know part of your liberal arts education a hundred percent of those rocks names you will forget two weeks after the exam maybe you'll retain one the name of one rock it sounds absurd it sounds absurd. no when you remodel your kitchen you got to learn them all again marty you got to learn the quartz you got to learn the granite <laughs> right right maybe that's why you need to know yeah. it but um we do the same thing in medicine. We're laughing. We do the same thing with the freaking urea cycle. Yes. I mean, why do you have to learn the every intermediate molecule of the Krebs cycle and memorize it and regurgitate it for exams at six different points in your medical training before you finish, right? They keep testing it over and over again. What are we doing? We're, we're taking these beautiful creative minds and we're forcing them to do this regurgitation And then they come out sometimes not learning how to take care of sick patients effectively. We scratch our heads. Why? And we say, throw more years at them in the, in the slammer. And so in general surgery, (laughs) we have five to seven years of general surgery education. And then you do another one to two years to specialize in breast. Well, I mean, if you're going to specialize in breast, why are you taking out prostates as an assistant in your general surgery residency and managing pancreatic abscesses in the middle of the night and having sleep deprivation and nearly getting into a car accident on your way home. Why are we doing that? And then we wonder how, why are a third of women leaving? And I don't know what the number is for men too, but the burnout and disillusionment rate is alarmingly high in part because we're treating our young so poorly. And all we have to do is recognize that these are beautiful creative minds we can be more efficient. And it's not about our cheap labor. It's about um, getting them to be competent and facile in the field. That's an important point. You know, I just saw that a training program recently offered to pay for embryo and egg freezing of all trainees. And I was like, you could just shave a few years off. Okay. You don't need to be (laughs) freezing your embryos. You can add another fucking four more years. All right. Just stop paying the freezing the embryos and let's maybe like graduate. Or have them memorize the Krebs cycle four times. Just one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's, let's go to the beginning. Okay. So one, I think maybe we'll see if we all agree. Um, Pre-med is lovely. Actually of all the years of your life, it's probably the most fun, like being a college kid. 
But if you really knew you wanted to go to medicine, do you have to finish four years, maybe let people go after two or three? I mean, if they know their hearts in medicine, why not have a pathway to let them jump up sooner? Medical school, as Adam has eloquently said, the fourth year is the most expensive vacation year of your life. Uh, one year can be poof, gone instantly. And the first two years, to Marty's point, is you're memorizing a lot of the things that you've often memorized in high school biology or college biology. So that's another poof year I see gone. Residency, I think if you're gonna be a great internist, you know, three years is reasonable. If you're gonna be a subspecialist, maybe make it two years and help them get to the subspecialty training. And then in subspecialty, I mean, even in Hemonk, 18 months is research. And what is that research? Like forcing somebody who doesn't want to do research to do some case reports. I mean, for a lot of people, that's what it is. And so maybe, you know, we can lose an extra year there. And so I think if anything, we should be talking about cutting the training by four or five years and not adding a year on the back end. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to object to that. Right. Okay. Um, so Go I ahead. agree that training could be and should be shorter. Um, but I've seen this in curriculum reform in medical schools as well, that what, what happens is students say, and I think totally appropriately, you know, we want to be on the wards faster. Um, and so the reaction is, okay, we're going to shorten the preclinical um, curriculum. But instead of doing that intelligently, it just gets compressed, right? There's not taking out Krebs cycle part three and four. There's, okay, you're still going to have to memorize it four times, but you're going to have to do it in 18 months rather than right. two years. Okay. So if we do these things, it needs to be done very intelligently because I have certainly no data for this, um, but I see in residence that there are very few people who after finishing an internal medicine residency are like, okay, I'm ready to practice, right? People are worried. They're sort of like, I don't feel prepared at this point. And so there's often the default towards a fellowship because oh, I'll feel more comfortable with more training. And that's sort of on us because we've had three years and we haven't gotten those people to the, to the point that they're just like itching to go into practice and start taking care of patients the next day. Um, and so I'm all for shortening things. And I, and I know you think this too, but it just has to be done in a really intelligent way where we, we make sure that people are prepared before they move on, you know, usually early to the next stage. Yeah, Can I, I ask I, a yes, question? Yeah. So Adam, what do they feel uncomfortable with? And the reason I'm asking is we all believe you have to be a master at what you, you do. I think we're, we're asking where's the waste that we can cut is do they feel I, that they didn't get enough time on their dermatology rotation or they're, you know, they need more time in nephrology or they need more ICU time or they need more time in clinic where they're dealing with unknowns. Right. Well, I, I think the issue is sort of going back to what Vinay said is that we're not thinking about what that individual needs to do or wants to do. Right. And so the person who wants to do general internal medicine I should be spending a lot of extra time, you know, in clinic, figuring out how to work the system, figuring out how to work through unknowns, um, rather than spending all this time on the inpatient service. And so they're worried about going out to practice on their own because, the, you know, they haven't done that enough. Um, and on the other hand, that person who's going to start, you know, a Hemonk, a Hemonk fellowship afterwards, um, you know, why are they spending three months on the cardiology service. Um, and they could be doing, you know, a little bit more uh, sort of general hemonk while they're internal medicine residents. So they've got a leg up when they start their fellowship. 
I mean, all you need to know is the heart's primary purpose is to deliver chemotherapy to the target tissues. I mean, it doesn't know other <laughs> real purpose. Um, but, you know, I, so I think, I think one of the good points is that, you know, if you know where you're going, there should be paths to cultivate your experience along the way. I think the second good point that Adam makes, and I think we really have to emphasize, is you have to cut things and you have to cut things people don't need to know. And I know the people who teach the Krebs cycle for the umpteenth time, they don't want you to cut their, you know, job basically teaching that class but it has to be cut i mean it has to be cut and modern medicine always reinvents itself should start with a destination and think backwards and then to marty's point and to adam's point i think um it i think it is definitely there's a crisis not a crisis but an anxiety among young people in their first year or two years of practice i always tell people you don't even feel like an attending until year three and it's not that you don't know the answer sometimes you know the answer but you really miss that cushion of being able to have the attending bounce off the idea and check all your sort of decision-making with the attending. You don't have that. Now, how would you solve that? I think maybe to Adam's point, he's always made this point eloquently, you know, internal medicine training is three years. It's a time, but what it should be is six, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis, seven pneumonias, 22 heart failure exacerbations, 10 mixed picture. I mean, there should be some checklist and it should be sort of an experiential thing. Like once you've hit your I've managed DKA or uh, uh, like uh, I've managed infected gangrenous foot for the 25th time, you know, like you're off the hook for infected foot, you know, osteomyelitis of the foot and you're going to look other things. And, and yeah. it w- we complain so much about the electronic medical record, right? This is a, uh, an Perfect area use. that we can make it work for us, right? Because we're tracking all of this stuff and you can say, look, you know, when you finish your admission H&P, you know, you're putting in, you're probably doing it already, you know, the three main points of this case that you're managing. And that goes into your, you know, your own little, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of portfolio of cases, you know, in Epic um, that then lets you know, okay, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. You know, these cases now go to the hospitalist when you're on call and you wait for something else to come in. And I got to say one more, you want to say something, Marty? Canada does that with surgical procedures and surgical training. You know, you you hit certain milestones. Uh, There's a guy named Dr. Resnick who pioneered this. And it was really a new model of education. And that is that when you, you know, do 25 carotid endarterectomies and you can get signed off by your supervisor that they feel that you're pretty good at doing that procedure, then you move on to the next thing. But remember, residency and training is not really designed, even the fourth year of medical school, which is somewhat of a complete joke or a partial joke. <laughs> I don't know who the, the joke is on the student. Yeah, who's paying? Right? Who's, who's financing this corrupt system? And then the hospitals get this GME allotment, which is basically a bonus payment from the government because you do teaching, right? That comes from the old days when they argued well, this, the students and residents don't know what they're doing, so they're incredibly inefficient, and they're ordering all kinds of unnecessary tests. So pay us extra to cover all this waste, right, that they yeah. create. And now you, yeah. you, they actually make the hospital more efficient because they're incredibly cheap labor, so it's ironic. And you know that they make the hospital money because when Hahnemann went bankrupt and they sold their residency, it went to the highest bidder and they're bidding like $100 million. So you know that it's an asset. It's not a liability. <laughs> if a venture capital firm is going to give you $100 million for your residency program, it's making you money, duh. Okay, I got to say this. And you're going to put, you guys, I want you to push back on me because I'm going to be hard on. I mean, uh, what am I to think when these people tell me, 
the people running these extra fellowships did not they themselves do the fellowship. Okay, that's point number one. They didn't do it because they're running it. Two, they're paying the person who should be paid assistant professor salary, which by the way, it's not like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's an academic medical center. It's not going to be that great. They're paying them 50, 60, 70% what they would otherwise earn, often just a fraction of their own billings. Like it's, they're actually earning you money. And then three, they're doing tons of like free research labor for you which is why you like it. I mean, let's be honest, that's why you really like it. I mean, I would like it too. Somebody followed me all day and did a lot of my work and I get to pay him a little bit, you know, and I get to have him, my helper. Um, you know, and and so I guess I, I called it exploitative and I really do. And everyone's all mad at me, you know, you, oh, you, it's too harsh, exploitative. It is like when you take a smart person and you squander their time and you make it harder for them to like participate in normal life you're exploiting them and let's just call it what it is and and if you don't think you're exploiting them then just advocate to pay them the assistant professorship salary it's only like 80 i don't know difference of eighty thousand dollars that's the cost of like one of your drugs for one month like it's not even like just take one drug and that's it that's it that's your money or or the spillover on a grant okay so tell me that i'm being too harsh on him adam here all right go, go ahead, ahead adam. go ahead no more uh, you go Here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, but I, you're always a pro at saying, okay, look, like, here's a good idea. Let me take it to the absolute extreme to get people like angry about it. Um, you do have to admit that like medicine is changing, right? Medicine is getting more complicated. Um, and well, let's talk so, about that. Yeah, so you on, can't just on. say, right? I mean, you can't just say that we go on with the same amount of training forever even though it actually, the, the job actually gets harder, right? Um, and so, you know, people, I don't think the idea behind this is that the people who are already on the boat are pulling up the ladder and saying, we're just going to exploit the poor people who are treading water right now. They're honestly thinking, boy, you know, the people who are getting into this job don't know enough now, and they're doing so much training on the job. Maybe we can do a better job of teaching them. But I agree that we need to pull back and we need to say, listen, we are saying that to train a hemonc doc, it is, you know, six years postgraduate period. Okay. And if we need to focus that more and specialize more, that's how we need to do it. And I think that's kind of the appropriate way forward. That's that's the expert way to put it. Marty, thoughts? I'm going to push back on well, this second. Yeah. Look, I, I, first of all, this is what I love about you, Vinay. You like to challenge deeply held assumptions in the field that we've inherited and nobody has questioned. And the reality is that this idea of fellowship training serves two purposes. One, it serves as a credential to ensure that you've got some standardized level of quality. But two, it serves as a way to create an elite club. And you are only allowed in that club if you go through our training program. So for example, when bariatric surgery started, um, you had really qualified people doing high volume bariatric surgery, but they didn't do a fellowship. And then they, you know, a group of them said, we need a, a fellowship program in bariatric surgery. Now they didn't grant, you know, they grandfather, I mean, they didn't grandfather people in because I guess they're, they've never been boarded, but they, it, it's probably good that they create some sort of advanced training. Here's the thing. Why do you need a certificate, though? Most of your learning happens your first year or two of practice. And what I find makes what makes a great doctor versus an average or mediocre or very scary doctor is their humility, their will, their ability to understand their limits and ask questions of somebody 
like Adam, who's a genius and been around forever, right? You want somebody who, who's not for it. I don't mean, I didn't mean no, to say. Yeah, call it the way it is. Look at that gray beard. I call it the I, way it is. <laughs> I didn't mean. I didn't mean to suggest he qualifies for Medicare because he, <laughs> next <that's>, year. <laughs> I got ten years. <laughs> ten years. <laughs> don't worry, they'll raise the age by the time you're there, Adam. Um, okay, Marty, that's well put. That's well put. Um, okay, so to to Adam's point, yes, I think a more graceful way to say it is to say, look, you've got this many years. You want you can do whatever the hell you want with those years, okay? But if you want to train these people differently, you got to use your years wisely. Um, I think that's reasonable to say. The second thing I'd say is that you know, Hemonk is eighteen months clinical and eighteen months research. So if somebody in those eighteen months says, "I really want to do breast," it's incumbent on them to just go to the breast clinic in the other eighteen months and just like you know, plant yourself on a stool and spend some time there. And you're going to learn breast and you're going to learn myeloma. Um, but you know, I think Adam raises a philosophical point, and this is what I I don't I don't know if I've actually come to the answer on it. So I'm just going to talk it out. Is medicine harder than it was? I will absolutely concede there are more drugs than ever before, more therapies than ever before. But in some ways, there are more algorithms than ever before. There's more pathways than ever before. There's more crutches than ever before. Um, And sometimes medicine does displace rather than add on. Like sometimes a new therapy displaces the older one. Rarely, like a new therapy is so good, it displaces many older ones that required more sort of careful monitoring. Medicine's safety windows get better. And so there's less sort of, you know, drug talks. And, you know, for instance, you're not checking DIG levels on your uh, heart failure patients like you once did. Uh, you're not checking any levels on your Coumadin patients like you want. You know, there's less level checking. Some of that is necessary. So I guess, I don't know. I think it's a, I mean, you know, maybe you're right. Uh, but maybe it's a, it's an interesting question if like the job of being a doctor is more cognitively tacked. I mean, I certainly think the volumes have gone up. The turnover has gone up. Um, the sort of the business side is more efficient, but I wonder, I don't know. What do you think, Adam? You've been doing it for so long, as he said, you know, 40, 50 years uh, as an attending. Uh, <laughs> what do you yeah. think? Is it more taxing? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And it's something sort of like you, I, I'm not sure I've thought about how do you measure something like yeah, that? You, you know, um, I, I think the fact is, is that because of everything else that's changed, right? Like, like every person who works in America, right? We have gotten more productive and more efficient over the time that I've been in my career. Um, part of that, again, I kind of like, I sound like I work for Epic is because, because of the <laughs> electronic medical record, which really enables me to have so much information at hand. I can do a better job taking care of patients with that. You know, I use my con- the my consultants better because of that. Um, and so there is probably a balance of, you know, we know more, we can treat more, we can diagnose more, but on the other hand, it it really is easier to do a lot of the diagnosis, a lot of the treatment than it used to be. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Marty, how about your field in the cutting business? Well, um, I will tell you that what you're talking about, what we're talking about today is not a theoretical at all in surgical training Cardiac surgery, for example, has just been completely fed up with the idea that you do five years of general surgery training where you're, you know, taking out some, you know, uh, melanoma of the thigh, you know, and then in order to understand how to be a good cardiac surgeon. And the argument has been, oh, we teach you basic principles of surgery. No, they've been slave labor. Look at their, look at their rotation assignments, right? They're given the less favorable rotation assignment sometimes because they're, you know, they're seen as the people who are not super interested in going off. So cardiac surgery decided, screw you guys in general surgery. You can do one year 
of general surgery and then match into cardiac surgery. We're going to take people after one year. They can do a transitional year or whatever. And then you, you don't have to do five years and then match into cardiac surgery. Vascular surgery is considering going down. Now, interestingly, very few people signed up for the program in vascular. I forget what it was, like a, a 4-2 initially. And then I think they tried to go lower instead of a 5-2 or 5-1. So um, there, this is a, this, this is This is a movement is what you're saying. Movement. Yeah, this is a movement. All right, we'll go to the second top. But I just wanted two closing points. One, um, you know, people were, were saying that, you know, I was wrong. And one proof that that was wrong is if you survey some of the people who did this extra year, they really like it. I was like, well, okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, people tend to like what they committed. Okay, okay, that doesn't really prove, I mean, I mean, as a scientist, I was like, what do you, you think that's data? Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, the second thing they said is, and look at you, you took an extra year to do an MPH. And I was really deeply offended because I didn't take an extra year. I did it while I was, you know, I had to be there anyway. And if I'd taken an extra year, I wouldn't have done it. And, I, and so I was offended that anyone would dare think I took an extra year to do it. Okay. Next topic. All right. So, you know, there are many medical decisions that I think there's strong evidence and it's pretty clear and 99 out of hundred doctors would do something. There's some medical decisions that just don't have that much evidence. There's no randomized evidence. There's barely any uh, phase two studies. And uh, recently I was in a situation where I was consulting on some patient and uh, working with the, the fellow and um, basically the options were mild, medium, or hot. And uh, that was the levels of treatment. We could go with the hot stuff, but it has a lot of side effects. We could go with the medium stuff. We go with the mild stuff. And, you know, I had seen the person. I looked through the person's chart. I met him. I laid hands on the person. Um, you know, like I know this person. And at the end of the day, I have to be honest. Like, how do you decide mild, medium, or hot? It is 100% gut. I mean, there is no data. No one has any data here. There's not even experience because the entity is like relatively infrequent so that in your year, maybe you'll see it four or five times. Like you can't even say that my, like, it's just anecdote. I mean, it's like, it's an unreliable sort of personal experience. And so I laid my hands on this person. I looked at them, I looked at the chart. I'd seen him with my own two eyes and I felt like, you know, let's go with the medium, you know, and then the, you know, the fellow said, let's go with the medium. And of course, of course, the nature of the modern world they ran it by the expert at some, you know, top tier center, the expert who didn't see the person, uh, who only sort of heard about the person in an email. And the expert was like, oh, you definitely want to go with the hot sauce. You want to go with the hot stuff. You know, of course, that's what the expert thinks. And in my mind, and uh, so I'll leave out the politics of how these decisions get made. But in my mind, what irritates me about this whole thing is why don't we just have the humility to agree that nobody has any data to support medium versus hot. It's like going to a new restaurant and sometimes what they call medium, I'll call hot or I'll, you know, like we don't, first of all, we don't even know what the scale is, right? You know, okay. Um, and, you know, the, the person probably who's best to make the decision is the person who's there. I mean, what are we talking about? Ivory tower doctor who runs trials and has a lab that pipettes who doesn't see the patient. They shouldn't be making the decision. It's gotta be the person who's got skin in the game. Like I'm gonna have to take care of the complications. Okay. And then it made me think even broader. The broader thesis is I'm so, I mean, I'll say politely or in, I'll say it impolitely. This expert, this expert stuff is all bullshit. I mean, experts like, yeah, very rarely do they know something I don't know. Most of the time, they're just more comfortable bullshitting. I mean, they have no data. They're just making things up. Okay. That's my hard, the harsher thesis. Um, Adam, then we go to Marty. Yeah, this is about I, expertise. Yeah. I think there, 
I, I think there are two issues here. Um, you know, one of them is something that I deal with all the time as a generalist. Um, and I, I would say about half of my conversations precepting residence clinics are about this is, you know, when do you refer to a specialist, right? And for me, it's, is there more known that I don't know that that person can add to it, right? And and very often, you know, if a resident is saying, oh, we need to refer this person to nephrology because they've got CKD3, you know, my reaction is, look, they don't know anything that we don't know about managing this. And if you want to refer them to kind of get that work to somebody else, that's fine. Um, but we don't have a question to ask, right? And I think that gets a little bit to what you're saying is that, look, nobody knows how to manage this better than you do. Um, and when you're, at a, when, when you're in one of those kind of evidence-free zones, right, where you're like, this is just a hard decision because we can't really counsel people well on the you know, risk of harms and likelihood of benefits because we don't have that information, then that comes to you, know, you sitting down with the patient, you're talking about risks and benefits, you're talking about your decision, you, know, you guide them, you get their opinion, and kind of that should be it, right? There's no role for consultation in that point. And you know, things may work out well, they might not work out well, but that's the way medicine is practiced, right? And it takes some guts to do that. It takes some guts, yeah, and yeah, we have to have guts because you're the you're not. okay, Marty. Well, I'm I'm just <clears throat> deeply offended. How dare you talk about Dr. Fauci like that? <laughs> uh, we're talking about clinical doctors. Is he a clinical doctor? It's been a while, maybe. Oh, okay. <clears throat> no, I think um, I I, I, here's what here's my experience with it. <laughs> I think I, I I believe you you can learn something from everybody, and so. Even if I disagree or have a different point of view, or they come, they come at something from a totally different angle. Um, I, I like input, but the problem is what I've seen in some these multidisciplinary cancer conferences. Somebody will present, you know, we got a 84 year old woman with pancreatic cancer, and here's the lesion, and then we start saying, oh, you can resect the vein and do this and reconstruct here, and then you, we may, sort of make a verdict, right? Like this is what we recommend. What if she? What if she didn't want to have all that done? What right. if she is frail? What if she has a very low life expectancy separate from the cancer? That in that case, that's bad guidance. And when we sort of detach from the patient, don't have that input from the person who saw the patient, they should start off saying, "Here's a frail woman who is not that excited to be here and generally doesn't want anything done." but is open or her daughter urged her to come in here. That's the, how you frame a case, right? Not just put up a scan and, oh, we can cut it out here or we can radiate it or beam it or poison it. You know, th that I think is missing from a lot of these clinical dialogues, especially you go to conferences and they put up image after scan after scan, patient after patient. I think it's, I think there's value in learning from hearing different approaches, but there's just assumptions that the patient is on board. You know, I, at one point I took time. I had a complication with a, a patient after pancreatic surgery. And I realized, you know, I want everyone to know this is a possibility. And <clears throat> doesn't matter who's doing the surgery, anybody can have this complication. So I went through a lot of detail explaining this is a possibility and that's a possibility. And remember, because this is pancreatic cancer at this stage, there is 
a four out of five chance that this thing will come back in a few years. And when I presented the whole thing to her, I kind of realized like, I wouldn't have it done if I were her in this particular situation. Right. And I remember she said, you know what, really like there's a, only an 18% chance I would make it to five years. I said, yeah. And you go through this big procedure and, you know, uh, she was frail and she said, I'm okay. Thanks. No, thank you. And I realized, Hey, if I go through this formal and consent informed consent process properly, I'm going to have like 10% less patients to operate on in my practice. And you realize we're disincentivized to do it, but it's important that we do. So well put. And I think when I was saying, like, I laid my hands on this person, part of that also means what you're saying, which is like, I talked to this person and like, I like get a sense of like, you know, how hard does he want to push and how old is he and how frail is he? And does he want to try the hot sauce without knowing that the hot sauce is really better than the medium sauce? Um, so I also, that's part of why I was a little you're bit irritated. About- when you talk about hot sauce media, you're talking about different levels Strengths of toxicity of, chemo- of yes. different chemotherapy. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Is this part of the jargon of what you guys talk about? No, in, I'm just using it for the purpose of this okay. dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just like different strengths of chemotherapy, more toxic versus less toxic, but potentially better, but unproven that it's better. And then like, of course, in retro, and then afterwards, somebody was like, oh, here's, here's the paper that supports the, the hot sauce, the stronger stuff. And um, it's like a retrospective study comparing people who received the stronger stuff versus people who didn't showing that they did better. And I was like, yeah, but you do see the potential biases that like a good doctor wouldn't be giving this to a frailer person. So it's kind of confounded. You do know that. And so I'm like, at some point, I'm like, even the data is like useless. I'm like, this is a useless data. What are you showing me? You should know this is useless. Okay, Adam, you want to say something? Then I just came up with the, the, you know, hot sauce metaphor, and he's actually going to trademark it before he releases this video so he can charge when other people use it. But it would make it more accessible. Yeah, there's three different chemotherapy <laughs> multi-drug combos with different levels of cytopenias and other toxicity. Uh, that's all. I mean, that's often the case. I like I the think. hot sauce. Yeah, it's a hot. It's a, it's a hot sauce. Yeah. And this is a guy who's saying he doesn't like hot sauce. That's what I'm telling you. He's telling me he's had a bad experience with hot sauce. His medical chart tells me that, and he's saying like I'm okay with medium. It's still pretty good, you know. And you don't really know the hottest, better flavor. It's amazing. Adam, are you going to say something? Yeah, this is actually, I I mean, I hate to link anything to COVID, but I have to say like COVID has taught me a lot about this when I thought think about evidence-based medicine. And what it's really clarified for me is that, you know, when we have data, right, it is so easy to counsel patients, right? Because you can really lay out, look, this is what's best. This is what's not best. This is why, right? The problem is when we don't have data, And it's this, you know, our counseling gets so difficult for people. It's difficult in the room. And it's also sort of like in the atmosphere, right? This is where we argue about things when we don't have data, because we just don't know. Um, And in a a way, it's easier when you're with a patient than when you're on Twitter, because when you're with a patient, you can say, look, this is our shared knowledge. You know, what are your values? What do you want to do? On Twitter, it's just a whole bunch of people who really don't know anything, right? Because we just don't (laughs) have the information. Arguing with people very much because of their anxieties and their values and stuff, which are fine, but you can't come to a consensus like that. Twitter is just the place where people who don't read books argue with people who write them. That's what I always like to say. Marty, (laughs) thoughts on this? (laughs) Well, um, it's amazing how many people come in and 
it, there's no discussion about the options, right? It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, and their expectations are set, right? So it could be some doctor is sending the patient to me saying, this surgeon can take this out. So they come to me so hopeful, you know, now forget about the prognosis being extremely poor. It's just, hey, this guy can take it out. And so it's easy for me to say, hey, yeah, we can take this out. We high five, we schedule the case, we do it. Never at any point is there a discussion of an extremely high recurrence rate or the mean, you know, the what's the cure rate? That's what people want to know when you say, oh, you know, there's a um, survival benefit or there's a, you know, um, uh, on average, 38% um, of patients will have an improved survival. They want to know what the cure rate is, right? If you're the patient, you want to know what the cure rate is. At least that's what they're asking. It's not like right. the other. No, it's saying like, I'm going to, you're talking about a Whipple, I feel like. And it's like, if I'm going to go through a Whipple, I want to know the curative fraction. Um, and, you know, they pushed on the Whipple a lot. Now they, they give neoadjuvant chemo RT and then try to take you to Whipple. I'm like, this is all unproven. Like, where's your randomized data that you're improving curative fractions rather than just doing more surgery on somebody who's already incurable? They don't want to do those kinds of studies, though. What are you going to say, Adam? I want to bring it back to the COVID. Point. I was going to make a snide comment. That oh, of course. <laughs> Go on. I, I was just going to make a snide com comment that Marty bought his ticket when he decided to be a menial laborer, that we just refer people to him to say, hey, take this out. Do the job. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then I'll get the question. Oh, this person needs this surgery. How do I set the patient up for surgery? Do I just schedule the operating <laughs> date? <laughs> no, we, we actually see people. It's not a factory assembly line. We'll see them and evaluate them and, and do an informed consent. I'll take two Whipples, please, Marty. Okay, so, um, you know, to Adam's point about the lack of data, I guess part of, I, I do absolutely agree with you. When there's data, it's clear. When you can make a decision, you know, calculator and make that figure with all the people and show the pros and cons of the different strategies. I mean, that's really nice shared decision-making. When it's a data-free zone, a lot of it is how you put things. A lot of it is, you know, um, how you, your read of the person. But I do think it's like the individual is the, is the best way to do that. With COVID, one of the things that irritates me about it is, you know, somebody was like, um, I'll, pick, I'll put the issue. The issue was like, two-year-old to four-year-old cloth masking, okay? And obviously I've been a vocal critic of that. Then every once in a while, someone's like, oh, what do you know? You're not a pediatric ID doctor. I was like, well, they don't know shit about this issue too. What are you talking about? They never ran any studies. The WHO says against it. And if I really need to go to school for all those years to have an opinion on masking a toddler, that doesn't speak so well of my cognitive abilities that like I would, you know, like you have to go 20 years of school to know it doesn't work. You just need eyes and ears. Um, so, and similarly, the New York Times, they always do their survey of experts. These are the same people who said they wouldn't open an envelope for four days in the beginning of the pandemic. You know, the say, I don't want to know what they think. I want to know what, like, I want to know what the, the guy in the, you know, the plumber thinks. I mean, I have, a, I'd rather do a survey of just random people uh, than these kinds of things. And I guess it has to do with expertise. I mean, what does it mean to be an expert if there is nothing that you're hanging your hat on other than... N of eight. I mean, I don't know. Are you referring, is the eight example come from the eight mice that the FDA- <laughs> Yeah, for the antibodies, yeah. The bivalent <laughs> Pfizer bivalent, yeah. Is you can learn a lot from a mouse. So I just want to push back on that a little bit. You can learn a lot about COVID vaccine effectiveness from a mouse, from eight do, mice. Do they, get, do they get myocarditis? 
don't, I don't think they live to tell the tale if they do. I think I think the longest surviving rat is like four years. That's just a little fact there. It's interesting. So, <clears throat> all right, last topic. What was the last topic? Marty's got to go. You got to go, Marty? Yeah, I got to go, but this is getting juicy here. And you're going to talk about COVID, so I'm going to stay on for five more minutes. Okay, you're going to cut it close. But what, where do we dive in on COVID? I mean, I think the most recent thing that got me was, okay, let's, let's talk about it. We got to put it out there. I mean, this long COVID research, I mean, I don't know what to say. Um, you know, there recently was Eric Topol. He's back. Of course, he's back. The, the crown prince of accurate analysis and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and critical thinking. He's got, there's a, there's a JAMA Health Forum paper. The JAMA Health Forum paper has like a huge electronic data set. And what they do is they define you as somebody who had a post-COVID condition, PCC, if you had one of like, you know, a laundry list of ICD-10 codes placed in the chart, five to 10 weeks after the EHR documented a PCR COVID-19. All right, let me put it another way. So they're taking this big data set. Everyone is getting COVID. Some people are coming to the hospital or their doctor to be tested for COVID. That's not everybody. Most people who get COVID don't go to the doctor. I didn't go to the doctor. You know, you get tested at home. That doesn't count. If you come to the doctor, get tested for COVID, you get put in the COVID data set you get on the COVID arm. And then if five to 10, 12 weeks later in those window, you had one of these many diagnostic codes added to your chart, you get called a post-COVID condition, PCC. And they compare these PCC people to healthy people who are not healthy, covariate matched people who didn't get COVID. Okay, they're, they're covariate matched. And then they follow them for a year and they ask how many of them died, how many of them had MI, how many of them had heart failure, how many got COPD. And the answer is more people in that PCC cohort get COPD than in the cohort of people who didn't have a documented COVID who are covariate matched. Okay. Now, when I see a study like this, my obvious you know, thought is that all things being equal, somebody with underlying COPD who gets COVID is more likely to seek medical testing and medical care for the COVID because they're getting hit really hard. And so if you follow them out in the future, I should not be surprised that they have more COPD diagnoses because they probably, that COPD is what made them see the doctor in the first place for their COVID diagnosis. And we all know that the propensity score method doesn't match very well in EHR data sets when you have so many variables you're not matching on. And okay, so the bottom line I think is we've got this industry of people who want you to think that COVID-19 is this new respiratory virus that will liquidate your organs and liquidate your brain. It's gonna be long-term debilitating effects, unlike any of the other coronaviruses. This is very unique. And to bolster that argument, they do research that is just so bad. I'm like, how is this even published? It's like, okay, Adam. Then I, what what do we do? Because listen, you know, we are bad at studying things like this, right? We know this forever, that we're bad at studying these sort of, um, you know, multi-organ systems that cause mostly subjective problems, right? And, you know, long COVID exists, right? You can't deny that. There are people who are worse after having COVID than they were before they had COVID. Now, I don't... <clears throat> really think that that's more common than people who are worse after they've had flu or mycoplasma or chemotherapy or anything. Okay. But like, that's real. 
I agree that this research, most of it is garbage. Um, I worry that what's happening is these are just people trying to grab a pot of money, right, for further research and treatment. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss of like, what do we do better? You know, we, we can't sort of ban, okay, we're not going to study long COVID anymore, right? Because there are people suffering from it. I mean, I have people in my clinic who are like, I, I used to talk to them once every two years and now I talk to them every month because like they are different and they are suffering. And these are physicians and people who, you know, I would never have expected this from. Um, so I don't know. Okay, I I'm got lost. okay, yeah. and I and I and I share this, and I and I I'll give you a couple of interesting a couple points right off the bat. One, there's no doubt about it. Anyone who says they're suffering is suffering because that's what suffering means. It's to feel suffering. I mean, that's nothing more. I if you feel terrible, you're suffering, and and I think we have to give that full importance because we need to do something about it. Okay, now long COVID, I think uh, a few data points. The first thing I'd say is like, of course, if somebody gets on the vent, hospitalized on O2, it's going to be a long path to recovery, whether you have COVID or influenza and, you know, don't expect to feel good in six weeks. It might take six months or even a year, you know, if you've been hospitalized, if you've been on the vent, you know, don't expect to regain your muscle mass for maybe, you know, maybe, maybe never, but, you know, two years, if you're lucky, maybe, you know, and so, okay, that's one phenotype, but long COVID is unique because they say you could have mild or asymptomatic or, you know, regular cold like COVID, and then you could have this long-term stuff. The data points I point to are one, that NIH study, which was like 180 people who had 65% had the post-COVID symptoms. Go on. You know what I'm talking about? Annals of Internal Medicine. I, I, yeah, but I got I, I to gotta interrupt you because yes. this is where I think we, you know, and obviously, look, you, you and I are as committed to, yes. you know, data and publishable <clears throat> data as possible. But I think we're, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a, a really common infection, right? Which yes. is going to remain really common, just like every other upper respiratory tract infection that happens, right? And some people are going to have a weird idiosyncratic bad outcome. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, this has made my anxiety worse, right? I mean, these are people and they're weird things, but they're things which which as we go further, we say, look, we see this, you know, we see people with worsening tinnitus. We see people with orthostatic hypotension, like everybody you talk to who's kind of in the field, like this, this is what it is. Right. Um, and I'm not optimistic that we're going to figure out a way to treat this well, because I don't think it's any different from, you know, what we were seeing 10 years ago in people with difficult to treat subjective symptoms of multiple organs, right? That's half of what I do as an internist. Right, right. Um, and so I gotta, we got to figure out a way of like turning down the temperature a little bit. So A, people aren't so worried about long COVID that it's important. Okay, that was one of my first to, points. Yes, right, go on. To yeah. enjoy life. And that we're going to put an amount of money into the research which is sort of correlates with the degree of suffering that this is truly causing. And I think what your argument is, is that, you know, a lot of people are trying to overstate the degree of suffering, you know, how prevalent long COVID is. Um, and that can be a big problem. It can, I mean, you know, absolutely. I agree, I agree with all that. The point I was going to make is there's no biochemical abnormality that we can yet detect. And that's kind of an important yeah. thing for pathology, but I guess I'd say one, 
there should be randomized studies, like randomize them to venlafaxine or not, or, 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 you know, whatever you want, but randomize people who are suffering to an intervention or not. And if they do better, it doesn't matter how it works. If the venlafaxine works or the effects are works or, um, you know, the uh, flu, uh, Prozac works or whatever, that's one the whole genre of work. The second thing is, you know, we see the Havana syndrome. Havana syndrome was non-existent 10 years, 20 years ago. And then you remember this, this is the, the people at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba. Right, right, right. Okay. And, um, right. But we, and, we, we, and now there's that's new- totally different because we had a long history with like sick buildings and things like that, yeah. which we know are not a thing, right? But um, I, isn't it, it's, just, I, I it's just very think, similar. It's very similar, isn't it? Because, because the, it, once the idea think, came on, it spread an intelligent, like it's not just Havana. Many people who've been deployed in State Department sites have reported these symptoms the talking about the symptoms yields more people reporting this. I guess that's the part of it. Long COVID. This was created by Ed Yong. I mean, he wrote the seminal article, put it in the Atlantic. He got it from Facebook reports. The, the media coverage has always exceeded the, the scientific basis. And they have a reason for it because, Adam, it's like so many things. It's the thing that helps their preconceived policy notion. Right now, if you want me I, to wear a mask, you can't justify it unless there is long COVID. And unless long COVID I, is biological. I, I, Go on. I get all this. Yes. And I understand why, <laughs> you know, you you get your dander up about this, right? Yeah. Um, and I do think that, you know, for every hundred people that Ed Young would say, you know, has long COVID, you know, there are three people, right? Um, but having read all the same literature as you and knowing, yeah, there aren't biochemical markers and stuff and so on and so forth, you know, and it's going to sound like, but I know, but I know, you know, the group of symptoms, right? Which, which I see reproducible, you know, in people, like there's something there. And I think you're right. We have to figure out how to treat that. And it's not just from COVID, it's from everything, right? It's this whole group of patients who forever, we've changed the name a thousand times from, you know, neurasthenia to chronic fatigue syndrome to, to you know, Epstein-Barr virus right, to right. long COVID, right. um, you know, which I really do think are sort of similar, probably post-infectious stuff that we don't have a good handle on. And I kind of hope that, well, maybe because a lot more people are suffering with this now, because a lot of people had COVID all of a sudden, you know, that maybe we make some progress um but we are far from that because you're right you know we've got such a like umbrella way of diagnosing people that we're probably catching 10 times as many people who actually have something related to the disease as truly do i mean it's, a, it's very, i mean it's very interesting and i like this discussion i mean i guess the, the things we totally are in agreement on are people are suffering you got to do something about it you got to like think of these strategies i guess the questions i have are where is long COVID in India? Where is long COVID in the Indian slums in Mumbai? I don't hear any long COVID. I don't I know. Every, all uh, of India has been infected. There's no long COVID. There's no long COVID so, in Indonesia in like resource poor settings where people are struggling. Is long COVID to some yeah. degree a degree, disease so, of affluence? A disease of, yeah. No, so clearly, clearly where you disagree, and I'm just going to say it. You don't believe it exists at all. Okay? I believe it exists, um, but it's. Uh, I just don't see a biological basis no, no, no. for it. Yes, there's right, no biological, right. and, but it's, and, it exists like uh, you know, like pots exist. It does exist. Yeah, yeah, but so deep inside, you're like, you know, everybody, everybody, everybody 
who has long COVID, okay, just feels bad and they've got some other problem, okay? And we're not seeing it in, you know, a slum in Mumbai because, you know, those people don't have time to think about how they're feeling because they're just trying to live, right? Um, I disagree with you about that. Like, I think there is clearly, 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 you know, in in an in illness that starts after COVID, right? That people have just because I see it. Um, and and I don't think it's dissimilar to what people have had for the last 25 years after other things. And we probably agree to some extent on why don't we see it in all these less resource places? It's because there's like no way for those people to report it. They've got too many other things on their plate to care about, you know, a little bit of tinnitus or a little bit of dizziness. They're not on Twitter complaining about it, right? But as they, and say, they didn't read Ed Young's article. They didn't read Ed Young's. But that article. doesn't yeah. that that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. No, right? no, no. But and I do think it, it has therapeutic implications. Problems. Okay, here's the therapeutic implication. In the current mode of thinking, if you have long COVID, you may sign someone's disability form so they don't go to work. You may advise them to use a gravity chair or, you know, do this. I mean, these are what things are people doing, you know, or, or seeking these like, you know, I don't know, plasma. They're doing all sorts of crazy things. Maybe the answer is the opposite. Maybe we should be advising them to go back to work, to put your head, you know, to go back in person and do stuff, not to take more and more time to dwell on it. Maybe the way to improve the symptoms is the Mumbai treatment, which is that you got, you know, I mean, you have day-to-day issues to deal with. And, you know, like many things in life, I, I think, we are in a moment in culture where if something bad happens to you or you're depressed or whatever, or something, you know, the, you know, it's take a week off work and think of sometimes it's the last thing you should be doing after you take a week off or it's get back to work, get back to work, put your nose down and, and don't think about it. That's life. Um, and you know, with time you'll feel better. Am I, am I wrong? So I would say that, you know, listen to yourself, right? So if you believe that, these are the things we should do trials on. Yes, we should. Right? That's what I'm saying. That's um, what I'm saying. We should do trials on. Yes, of course. Right. And so I would say, look, you know, if you want to do the suck it up versus be cared for trial for long COVID, terrific, you know. Um, and I'd like you to say, if we're going to do trials, not just give me a list of antidepressants you want to try, right? Um, but let's also try some other things for this, okay? Um I guess to be honest, the, the to reason be honest I'm, with you, yeah, go on. I don't think we have a treatment for this yes. because I think that if we had a treatment, we would have figured it out in the last twenty-five years for all the people suffering from a whole bunch of other kind of syndromic complaints that we haven't been able to explain. Um, and so I'm a little bit pessimistic that we're going to come up with anything because it's going to take some serious breakthrough to figure out what's what's actually causing this problem in people. I think that's why, like, with, when you don't find a biochemical pathway that's altered, that's why it's tricky. Um, because yeah. then what do you interdict on? I mean, the reason I reach for SSRIs sure. is, right, you know, I don't know what to interdict on. Absolutely. And, and it's right. interesting to me that so the, I think it, there's a bi- it, it affects every organ system, but not a single of the 200 biochemical pathways. Right. We've looked. It's just very interesting. How's it doing that? How's it doing that? Right. I know. And I, I think there probably is a biochemical pathway that we haven't recognized. And that's why we can't treat it. You know? And that's why you memorize um, the credit. That's why we should memorize more cycles. <laughs> no, it's like your credit Way to bring it around. All right. This has been a good discussion. Um, Marty missed out on all this. I think Marty might've been on my side on this one, but um, 
You know, it is an interesting That's thing. That's why I waited till the end to argue. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I, think I, I, was, guess... I was better off one against mano yeah. a mano rather than two on one. <laughs> I think you were. I mean, it's it, 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 like, I guess it's hard to, I don't know. It's hard to juggle all these balls in the air because we're both, you know, anybody suffering, you got to take that seriously. You got to do something about it. So I, I want to, my, you know, my heart does go out to anyone who's suffering from anything. Uh, then the question is though, but I think maybe the one part, maybe we do agree on is that the more they, people like Topol keep pushing this in the media, like that's not help. That's not good for people's mental health to keep like, you know, living no, in fear of I, it. Yeah. We'll agree on that. And then how do you treat that, it? That I, that I do agree with. Right. Um, I, I, I sort of yeah. don't want to, and this probably disses both you, me and Topol, yeah. to be honest with you. I don't want to hear from anybody who's not actually an experienced internist who is working with people clinically um, who are suffering after COVID. Because those are the people who actually sort of understand the clinical pathway. And anybody who's doing a good job or a bad job looking at bad studies, I don't get it. Okay, but to to your Um, point, I would tell you, and I know somebody who goes to that because we have a long COVID clinic, the provider burnout sure. is through the is through the roof. The providers have a lot of burnout through the roof, through the roof, through, through the, the roof. roof. Because um, it's it's not everybody. It's, yeah, it's not it's not nice to be a right. doctor with nothing to help anybody with. Absolutely, yeah. and I'm I'm with you. Everybody I've talked to has been like, after four hours of clinic, I either need to go for a walk if it's in the middle of the day, or I need to go home and have a drink if it's the end of the day. Um, and it's because we don't know what we're doing, and we have trouble taking care of these people. I think it's also pointing at the biochemical pathway. Okay, Dr. Adam Sifu, it's <laughs> been it's been a pleasure. Great discussion. Some agreement, some disagreement. I hope people enjoy this Oof. sensible medicine. Maybe I'll put this out on the video. Uh, direct your hate mail to what's your email address? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere. It's easy everywhere. to find. <laughs> well, don't don't send it my way because I, you know, I'm not going to read your comments anyway because I need to use my own. You know, I got to say these comments. By the way, you know, lose the beard, keep the beard. Hair is too long. Get a hair. I mean, what are you doing, people? I don't want to. I don't care. This is not my appearance show, okay? And I don't care about your comments. I mean, and you also disagree with each other, by the way. Get your story straight before you send me advice. All right. Talk soon. Thank you. I think you look quite good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep that in there.